You're listening to the Save the Marriage Podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and welcome to the Save the Marriage Podcast, the podcast designed to help you save your marriage no matter what's going on, whether you're at the beginning of the relationship or if you're in the process of legal uh, issues with that, this is where we're going to talk about the whole spectrum of marriage because even while we're talking about how to save a marriage, you can work on saving a marriage before it even gets into trouble. In fact, today is one of those episodes that applies across the spectrum because it's about a mindset about an understanding of what happens in a marriage and how it gets into trouble. Today, I want to talk about Swiss cheese. Yep, Swiss cheese and how it applies to your marriage. Now, this is a redo of a podcast I did a long time ago at the very beginning of this podcast in the first year at least. And it occurred to me while I was away on vacation that this was an issue that I haven't talked about in a long time, and I think it might give you a mindset of why things go wrong. So now let me make a confession that I have a strange uh, obsession with scuba accidents. You see, every year there are filings of what happens when scuba, uh, people, people doing scuba, when people are participating in scuba and they get into trouble. They go through a step-by-step process. We do that internally as a scuba organization to to kind of self-monitor and decide what we might be able to do better in, in equipment design, in training people on how to use scuba, and in understanding it for ourselves as as divers. And since I'm an instructor, I like to stay on top of what's happened, what happened in those accidents, what led to the accidents. The interesting thing is that same mindset goes into aviation issues. You know, when we look at what happened in an accident with a plane, we like to think about how that might then uh, help us in the future. That really is kind of the nature of these investigations. Investigations aren't just to discover what went wrong, but to step back and say, how did that go wrong? In other words, to take a longer view, because here's the thing I've noticed. In all of the accidents, somebody wants something, one thing, one person, one incident, one problem, one equipment failure to point to and say, that was what caused the accident. And what has happened over time is we've realized that that's not really a good indicator of what happened. This is the same thing that happened in medical accidents. Whenever there's a medical accident, in other words, when something goes badly wrong in a medical situation, they like to to figure out how that happened. Part of that may be to assign blame and make sure that people who are responsible are held to that. But a bigger piece is to learn how to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. In fact, hospitals do a process if, if something happens, if there is an accident, if somebody dies with some, some medical uh, malfeasance, some accident happens along the way, they'll go through and do what they call a postmortem themselves where they're all talking about it on different levels of how this came to be. I know that because as a chaplain, I had to participate in a few times when I was present in the midst of a crisis. Because what happens when a chaplain's called in? It's because things are not going well many times. I remember the first time it happened. And when I walked into the emergency room or into the operating area, they told me about this incident that had happened. And and it was multiple levels. 
So a resident made a mistake, but didn't report that mistake. The mistake wouldn't have been catastrophic by itself. But then the anesthesiologist in the midst of the surgery didn't report how difficult it was to maintain the blood pressure. At the same time, the surgeon wasn't noticing or at least wasn't talking about why there was so much extra blood around. And the team wasn't talking about how they kept having to add blood to this patient. In other words, there was no communication across the field. But you'll notice that everybody involved had a point where they were involved in causing the cascade. The cascade. That's the whole point. So where does Swiss cheese come in? Well, if you're not familiar with Swiss cheese, Swiss cheese, if you slice it, it has a bunch of holes in it. And the Swiss cheese, those holes don't line up. So, you know, you get to a place where it's kind of solid. So there's this theory about understanding accidents called the Swiss cheese theory that says that we always are putting up defenses along the way. And it's basically as if you were lining up your slices of Swiss cheese so that the hole was covered by another piece of Swiss cheese. And so you keep on adding the pieces in there, and you keep on adding the pieces in there, and you might think that that is an impenetrable place, that all the holes are plugged. But given time, given the right circumstances, given some lapse somewhere along the way, the holes line up. And when the holes line up, that's where the accident happens. Years ago, I was reading a, a book. It was, in fact, we were listening to it. My wife and I were talking about this just the other day. It was by Michael Crichton, and it was about an airplane accident. I think it was called Airframe. And in that accident, they proposed this idea that no, um, no accident in a plane anymore is the result of one single thing. There's so much redundancy in the system that if something fails, something else picks it up. And if a pilot has a problem, there's some backup system. If, a, if an engine has a problem, the other engines can take over. If all the engines fail, it can still glide in. And so there are lots of these redundancies so that when there is an accident, it's not a single event. It's a cascade of events. It's the same with a scuba accident. There may be something that happens, something that goes wrong, but it usually is a cascade of things that happen. So maybe you have an equipment failure, and the equipment failure happens when somebody is in an enclosed area and they can't get out of it fast enough, or when and or when they don't have the training in how to extricate themselves. In other words, we have redundancy issues with scuba diving. It used to not be the case. It used to be that people would dive with a tank on their back and the regulator in the mouth, and sometimes the regulator would fail to, to open up. It would stop the air coming out, or sometimes they would run out of air because they didn't have a gauge, or sometimes they came up too fast because they didn't have a monitor. But we've replaced all that. We've, we've created systems to protect us. And so when I go diving, I know that if my regulator were to mess up, it would mess up leaving me with air coming out all of the time. In other words, it would open. It would default to open so I could at least get air. I also go down with a gauge that's on my, uh, my tank that tells me how much air is left. In fact, I use a computer that tells me how fast I'm going down, how much time is left, how much time I can stay on the bottom, and how slowly I need to come up. If that didn't happen, 
if I still had something that were, were to fail on the computer, the gauge would still work. The pressure gauge would still work and I would still know how much I have in there and I still have a watch on my hand to allow me to time myself out. On the side of my watch happens to be a, a little chart that will tell me how deep I am and how long I could stay there. I just have to take a look so that I have redundancy in there. Not only that, but I also know my limits of diving. So I'm not going to go into a big cave without the proper equipment. And, and I'm not going to go into a shipwreck without the proper equipment and without a buddy with me. And, and so we have these redundancies that are in there. So when we begin to tease apart what happens in an accident, we realize that there are multiple factors and failures along the way that happen. Which may raise the question for you of, what does this have to do with marriage? Well, you have the same kind of redundancies built into a marriage. So marriage is about connection. Let's, let's establish that the marital relationship, the connection there, is what feeds a marriage. Connection is the lifeblood. It allows all the other pieces to fall into place. And so even when you might be struggling in one area, if you're connected, you can make it through that area. Even if you're facing challenges, if you face it as a connected couple, you make it through that. If you're a we, you're building that connection on an ongoing basis and nurturing that connection. So we'll assume that the connection is the lifeblood that keeps it going. I'll also add that there's personal growth that's kind of a secondary importance. So one of the important ingredients in a marriage, in fact, the most crucial ingredient in a marriage is having that connection. A secondary one is the people are continuing to grow and develop. That's not as important as that primary piece of connection. A lot of times people say, you know, maybe if just if my, my spouse would grow up it would save our marriage. Well, no, the connection is what keeps it going. The growth is secondary. So we have these defenses along the way. If you think of those slices of Swiss cheese, we have this defense. The first defense is, is love. But let's be clear that love is really an outgrowth of lots of connection, the feeling of love. Then there is the action of love, where we can choose to keep acting. So one defense against losing that connection is to choose to keep acting lovingly, even when the connection doesn't feel as strong as you want it to be. Acting lovingly does not mean to feel to act romantically, but to do loving things toward a spouse. And so part of our defense is that. And then we have a, a defense called priorities, where we choose to prioritize a relationship. And we say, you know what? This is an important relationship. This is one that I want to nurture and keep going. So that's another area of defense. And then we have a subcategory of, of that priority, which is attention, that I'm going to show my spouse attention, to listen for the bids for attention, I've talked about this in, in the past. John Gottman has this idea that marriages are protected when each person uh, attends to the, the bids of a spouse. A bid is a look for attention, right? And so if somebody says, oh, look at that beautiful sky, they're wanting a spouse to join them in that beautiful sky. And if the spouse says, oh, I'm looking at my iPhone, it's a lost bid, or just ignores them completely, it's a lost bid. Or if a spouse kind of cuddles up and wants an arm around them, that's a bid for attention and a bid to give attention. If the other person says, hey, get away from me, it's too hot or it's too cold or it's whatever, the bid is lost. And so these little bids that are out there help us keep the attention going. 
spouses attending to each other is a defense, another slice, another defense against all those holes lining up. And then there's affection. And I'm talking here not just about sex, but including sex, that one of the bonding elements in a marriage is a certain level of affection. And it can vary from couple to couple, but it creates a defense. If somebody feels starved for affection, that defense is lost. If both people are feeding the affection towards the other person, it allows that to move forward. Another one is being intentional about love languages. This is the idea that Gary Chapman talks about, that we have these love languages. We use love languages in order to make sure we're communicating well with our spouse on what's important to them. Sometimes we assume that the way we feel love is the way they're going to feel love. And so one of those defenses is making sure we're talking their love language. That's one of those ways that we make sure we're communicating the way that the spouse feels loved. Sometimes that happens by default. But if you're intentional about it, that adds a a real intentional defense there that can make sure that each person is feeling loved. And the final little defense that I would add in there is communication. What I'm talking about here is communicating in a way that's constructive. There are a lot of couples who, who have communication that's not particularly constructive. And so in this, we're talking about a defense of constructive communication. Arguing is not a defense. In fact, arguing is just putting another hole in that defense. And, and as it moves through, we get into trouble. Okay, so those are kind of our defenses, our slices of the cheese that protect us. And what happens sometimes is we begin to allow those defenses to have bigger and bigger holes. And so finally, at some point, they all line up, and that's when the problem comes. And so a lot of times a couple will say, oh, it was about this one. It was about this argument. Well, it's rarely about that argument. Or they'll say, oh, it was about the affair. There's more to it than just the affair. The affair had a background to it. Now, there may be a tipping point, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, as the saying goes. But those tipping points that, are, that create the cascade to fall through are still based in the fact that there's been a failure along the way. So let's use, for example, an affair. A lot of times people will say, you know, my spouse had an affair and ruined my relation, our relationship. And my usual response is, what was the background of that? Because there's this one other layer I didn't just mention, and that's boundaries. Boundaries are a big protector of when things aren't going well. In fact, it may be the last defense. So let's say that your connection is waning, and maybe your connection is waning because you haven't maintained priorities in the relationship, and so you've drifted apart, and you're no longer affectionate, and you're ignoring each other's bids, and you're, you're not communicating well, and, and you're not speaking each other's love languages, and the only thing that might protect it is a boundary of saying, I'm going to keep other people at arm's length. I'm going to keep our relationship safe while we work back towards the connection. So the last defense, those boundaries. When the boundary's not held and an affair happens, it's the end result of the disconnection. It's not the front end. With rare exception, there are not many people who just go out of their way to have an affair in an altogether happy relationship. There might be a small percentage that are pulled in by addictions and other pieces. But by and large, when we look at an an affair, it is the result of disconnection, a lack of boundaries. 
And the disconnection is a result of not having priorities, of not having set the boundaries, of not attending to things, of not being affectionate, of not speaking each other's love language, and probably not communicating real well. So the end result is the lifeblood has been pinched off, and it's only waiting for the right instance. The same is true for couples who are caught up in conflict after conflict after conflict. They probably didn't realize that the purpose of conflict, as I talked about a few weeks ago, was making progress, of getting to somewhere better. So they probably didn't understand that piece. But behind the conflict being being, uh, destructive is that the connection was already waning. And so both are vying to get an advantage. And probably there has been a lack of prioritization on the relationship. In fact, usually when couples keep with their priority, they act out of their priority that the relationship is important, they maintain the connection. And when they decide to be attentive to each other because of their priorities, they maintain that connection. And when they continue to be affectionate because their connection continues to feed and grow, they protect it. Okay, so my point of all this is to talk about the Swiss cheese model that each layer of the defenses that we have, of the, the connection that's already there, the, the feeling of love, and, and behind that the actions of love, and behind that the boundaries that protect the relationship from outside influences, and, and then a prioritization of the relationship to make sure that's the number one relationship. And on top of that, of, of attention, of giving attention to a spouse, and being affectionate with each other, and speaking each other's love language, and communicating in a way that is constructive. All of those are the layers. And as each one gains a bigger and bigger hole, there's a bigger and bigger fault in each one. Because remember, every defense has a hole in it. That's the Swiss cheese. Every defense has at least a hole. And what we're trying to do is make sure they don't all line up. But when they line up, because they've been enlarged, the the less you maintain your boundaries, the less you set the priorities, the less you set the attention, the less you're affectionate, the less you speak each other's love language, and the less you're constructively communicating, the bigger the threat, the bigger the danger that something is going to be able to get between those holes, through those holes, and create destruction in the relationship. It's not that one of those things is going to take down a relationship. It's when they all line up. So if you're well-connected, generally your priorities are going to follow. And if you have your priorities in the right place, generally the attention will follow and the affection follows attention and you're speaking each other's love language and you're communicating well. But you begin to break down each one of those and suddenly all of the pieces begin to line up so that there's a bigger and bigger chance of the destruction. So the final point of this is to recognize that when people are asking that big question and they come with me of why did this fall apart, the answer they don't want to hear but is the truth is that there is a multiple causation. There is a cascade of events that happen just like it happens in any other complex relationship and any other complex system like a plane or like a scuba accident or like a medical accident, all of those have multiple causation points because of the complexity of the system and your marriage is just as complex. And so when there is a problem in the relationship, when there is a crisis in the relationship, instead of working on figuring out the precipitating event, recognize that there are multiple precipitating events 
and there are interventions at every area. You can always prioritize again. You can always set new boundaries. You can always decide to be more attentive and, and look for the bids. You can always decide to be more affectionate. You can always show loving actions and speak your spouse's love language. You can always choose to be constructive in your communication. And as you make the positive actions on each of those layers, you end up building a stronger and stronger defense to keep the connection safe. Your goal with the marriage is keeping the connection safe. Your goal with restoring a marriage is re-establishing safety for the connection, re-nurturing the connection. And as you do this, you have a chance to save your relationship, even if you're at the beginning of it, to keep that from happening. But if you, even at the end, you always have that choice. See, the thing is, creating that connection, creating that sense of a we is what motivates and empowers any marriage. If you're keeping it safe or if you're trying to save it, either way, you're trying to build back to the connection, build back to the we. Now, if you're at the very beginning of the relationship and you're just trying to protect it, it's pretty easy to make sure you stay on the priorities and the attention and being uh, clear about your communication and, and clear about your boundaries. But if you're in trouble and you're not sure how to get back to that place, that's the time to grab my system, the Save the Marriage system, because that's the basis of this, of getting back to the core elements that have been hurt and how to reestablish getting those pieces back together. If that's something that would be helpful for you, I would invite you to grab it at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. Now, here's the thing. If you grab it now, I'm going to give you an opportunity of joining my VIP program for free for a week to make sure that you've got a good start going in. I'm also going to have one of my coaches contact you for uh, a no obligation, no cost consultation to make sure that you're getting started in the right way and moving forward with that. And I'm going to throw in all the resources that teach you how to save your marriage from the beginning of, of the, the quick start guide all the way to healing the, the hurt and the, um, the, the resentment that might already be there, the anger that boils under, to figuring out the things you should not be doing, to understanding a midlife crisis, to understanding why the affair happened and how to recover from it, and all the pieces in between. So if you're ready to take the action ready to re-protect your relationship, let me invite you into my program and join me at savethemarriage.com. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com.